Maintenance? Maybe we should call maintenance. I'll fix it. I'm gonna fix it. Concentrate it. Maintain it. Maintain control. Maintenance complete. This is The Maintainers, a Blue Cap community podcast. My name is David Lee, director of Traction, and your host for The Maintainers Show. And I'm Jake Hall, the manufacturing millennial. We're super excited to be welcoming you back for another conversation. And today we're joined by Gautam Sain, who is the senior reliability engineer for CP Kelco. CP Kelco has been around for 90 years. They're a manufacturer and provider for the food, beverage, and consumer industry. And it's really exciting because Gautam is joining us today with a lot of experience. He comes from the oil and gas industry. Now he's been in the food and bev industry as well. So Gautam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, guys. I appreciate uh, being on here. I'm looking forward to this exciting conversation with y'all about reliability. So let's do it. This podcast is brought to you by Traction. Traction offers streamlined hardware and software solutions designed to make maintenance more reliable and profitable. Their AI-powered condition monitoring and asset management solution predicts machine failures and unplanned downtime, allowing clients to save an average of $10 million every trimester. It's artificial intelligence quarterbacking your maintenance. So before we get into the business talk of things, summer's wrapping up. Um, so what was your favorite thing to do out in the, uh, in the sun this year so far? Well, for me, I mean, I feel like I'm in the, like probably one of the best places in the country in San Diego that I can just enjoy the beaches week in and week out. Summertime is obviously perfect for that. So yeah, you could definitely find me out on the beaches uh, these last few months, just taking in the, you know, the warm temperatures and the, and the nice waves and everything. It was great. So yeah. located in California, however, we have to recognize the shirt especially after so far how the season's been going so far. So how yeah. is, how's college football treating you so far this year? Oh, it's been a long time coming. It's finally treating me good again. It's been, what, 12 years since we were ranked, so I'm finally excited to see us number three in the country. So let's keep that going towards the playoff run and hopefully a national championship. So is, is Arch Manning going to be your guy for the next three years? Is he going to be carrying your team <laughs> to, uh, to victory for the, next, uh, for the next three years after – he uh, red shirts this year? I, I hope so. Yeah. Let me see that Manning blood and, and burnt orange. I want to see the good things coming from that. Awesome. So, Gautam, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started in the industry? So, I'm a chemical engineer by degree. I have a bachelor's from University of Texas at Austin, as you can see from the shirt. Um, I also have a licensed PE in chemical engineering, as well as certifications in project management, as well as maintenance and reliability. I'm originally from Texas, uh, Houston to be exact. I would say that I decided to, I chose to pursue chemical engineering, um, really based on my affinity towards math and science growing up. I guess given that, um, I, I kind of knew medicine was out or biology was out when I knew I couldn't handle dissections and I got squeamish around them. So <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was always inspired by chemistry though, because, uh, of its inherent concept of innovation. Like, you know, you could take two different substances and react them and make a new product. You know, I always liked that inherent concept and I wanted to see where that could potentially take me, you know, in the future. So I really wanted to pursue something in chemistry and, and maybe even um, engineering because that actually runs in my family. Like my, on my dad's side, it's all engineers. So I wanted to kind of mesh the two and see where that would take me. So but then, yeah, like you said, I, after that, I, I, went, I started out in oil and gas, actually in Houston after I graduated as a process design engineer for Floor Daniel, which is an engineering procurement and construction company, big name. I'm, I don't know if you've heard of them. 
Um, and they service major refineries and chemical operations around the world. In that role, I was doing uh, design work. So I would, I would run hi uh, hydraulic and thermodynamic simulations. So that way we could size equipment, piping systems, instrumentation and controls hardware, th you know, any, all the basic components of, of, of any, you know, manufacturing operation. So I got a lot of good design experience from that and then had a somewhat forced transition away from oil and gas in, uh, due to global, global market factors. So found my way in food. And yeah, I've just been kind of rotating through production, maintenance, engineering at this company. So I really bring, I feel like I bring a really unique blend of experience and knowledge to this role as a reliability engineer for the company. So I guess my first question is, is, you know, before we dive into the next segment, what's been some of the biggest differentials between the oil and gas and the food and bev, and also some of the big similarities between the two? Like, what have you found that's transferred well from one industry to another? And then what's been a complete awakening to you that way as well with, with that, with that transition? Sure. Um, good question. I would say the, one of the main similarities is the design of these systems, these manufacturing systems. Like it doesn't matter if you're in oil and gas or food and beverage or wherever else, you know, for a manufacturing plant, you're pretty much transporting, you know, something from point A to point B. So you need to figure out how, what equipment do you need to do that? What type of transfer systems do you need in order to make that happen? So a lot of the design concepts that I learned in oil and gas easily apply to food and beverage industry because it's the same centrifugal pumps, transfer systems, heat exchangers, distillation columns, you know, same, same types of equipment. So actually it was a rather seamless transition than I would have expected. But to your other point, the food and beverage industry, I did not realize how strict they are when they are when it comes to, um, you know, contamination and microbial interference of products. Like when I when I was in oil and gas, like that was the last thing on our mind was dealing with, oh, your product is contaminated with with bacteria. What? It's just oiling. It's just oil put in the car. But now it's now you're worried about, you know, contamination affecting people. So it's a much stronger emphasis on um cleanliness and sanitation around these manufacturing operations. So that is something I definitely had to kind of adjust to. And uh, at the end of the day, it's really, it was all great experience because now I also know or know kind of the basic ins and outs on how to keep processes clean along with running them efficiently as well. Great explanation there. I uh, love the similarities and also that contrast there, right? That was very interesting. I uh, never thought about that before as well. So we know a little bit about you now. We're going to jump into our first segment. It's called the Maintainers Mashup. We're going to deep dive into the equipment, management, and teams, and how can we make maintenance more reliable across the industry? Maintenance required. Listen, I maintain. I maintain myself. Maintain course. Maintain speed. I got to maintain respect. So can we hear a little bit more about CP Kelco as you talked about uh, the differences there, but more so your day-to-day? -day. So as I mentioned, so I'm the reliability engineer at CP Kelco. It's, it's essentially like any other manufacturing operation or plant that you would, that you would encounter you know, anywhere across the world. So the purpose of my role at this company is to, is to ensure that the assets um, that we have are able to run to the desired level of performance as needed by the by the users, or in this case, our production team, the key being whenever it's called upon. So we always want to make sure that our assets are ready to run the way they need to whenever, whenever. So what I do is I, I, I drive that by implementing various programs across the site, such as mechanical integrity, predictive maintenance, continuous improvement to eliminate bad actors, 
So my job is to try to make sure I eliminate all those problems that could have impact our asset availability to our operation. So can you dive a little bit more into, you know, the different types of the assets that you guys have, right? Food and bath, while it's a niche industry, there's so many different types of manufacturing processes and equipment and variabilities and systems and, you know, recipes that are built into that, that all have to be monitored to create successful products. You know, can right. you dive more into the assets and can you maybe talk about a couple of the products that you guys make and why that type of equipment is so critical to that, to that area? Yeah, let me uh, let me kind of back up and explain kind of what our co company manufactures so, so I can get into more of the specifics. Um, so CP Calco <laughs> is a nature-based solutions company that's one of the world's leading producers of specialty hydrocolloids. So hydrocolloids are, are essentially thickening and gelling agents that are used in all kinds of consumer goods, uh, ranging from food industry, personal care, industrial, as well as medical applications also. So... Uh, what we do is we produce these hydrocolloids through a specialty fermentation process. So essentially what we've figured out over the last 50 some odd years is through extensive research and development, we've been able to identify key bacterial cultures that reside naturally, you know, on various leaves and plants in nature. And we have found a way to harvest those specific bacterial cultures and artificially drive their production of our hydrocolloid product. CP Calco as a whole has, uh, has plants across the world, and they produce various families of these hydrocolloids. The plant in San Diego where I work makes a product fit line called Gel and Gum. If you were to buy a, a carton of almond milk and look at the back and look at the ingredient list, I guarantee you'll see Gel and Gum on the ingredient list. So there's a very good chance that that ingredient itself probably came from my facility. That Gel and Gum, it's derived from a fermentation process. So our assets are designed to support that uh, fermentation process. So we have uh, numerous ferment fermentation vessels uh, ranging from small sizes to large sizes. Um, we have, uh, what else? We have large, you know, agitators for those fermentation vessels with gearboxes and large motors driving those agitators. And then when it comes to the actual production side, that would, I would say, more or less mimics a standard oil and gas uh, facility. You have your yeah. centrifugal pumps, you have your distillation mm -hmm. columns, you have filters in line, you know, drying systems, milling systems, things of that nature. Now we do have some specialty equipment that is specific to our product, you know, like uh, vertical presses and uh, rotary dewatering screens to separate solids from liquids. So yeah, it's just, we have some custom things, but a lot of also standard equipment on, on the site. You know, and the one thing that, you know, I look at when you guys are out there, um, you know, after, after I've been in the food and bev industry for a while now, and you guys are touching all different types of stuff. And really, I mean, when you talk about jelly and gum or zaffian gum or pectin or like citrus fibers, like all the different types of stuff that you're, you're processing and manufacturing, they go into a wide variety of applications. But the, the unique thing about your manufacturing process is it's not like you do one segment and then like you stamp a part and that's, it doesn't matter if that stamp part sits there for five minutes, five hours, or five days. When it's done with that, you can just grab it and go to the next manufacturing process. With your system, it's a little bit more unique, right? Because it's time critical. It's process critical. You can't just make something and then have it sit there for hours and days and then come back and touch it later. And I think that's the right. one thing that really makes it unique when we're looking at these type of manufacturing processes the assets have to work right during the right time. And I think that's why 
it's so important to have a standard of reliability when it comes to those manufacturing processes that are out there. So, you know, I'd love for you to dive more into deeper is in order for you guys to manufacture a, a, a successful product, I would say the culture of reliability has to be established to make sure that equipment is running right properly on time when it needs to be running. How do you go about creating that culture and striving to have that culture at CP Kelco? To be honest, I, I would say that culture had been lacking at the at the company until recently. I think there was there was more of a focus that had been put on reliability from the higher ups. So now that kind of is permeating throughout the site. But uh, I would say, you know, at the onset of that of that uh, movement, there really wasn't much data around it to support mm. that culture change until we <laughs> put together this OEE model, which I'll get into later. We were able to actually develop a data-driven model that actually scores the plant performance based on uh, various factors that impact day-to-day -day production, like uh, asset downtime or inefficient operation or bad quality. So what we were able to do now is we've been able to define essentially a grade for our plant based on how, how much product were we able to put out the door compared to what we should have been able to put out the door and whatever bad actors we highlight as reasons that cause those gaps in us not being able to, to meet our attainment, you know, we will Pareto that from highest impact to lowest impact, and then we'll know exactly what we need to target to bring the biggest value back to the company. So now we're in that mindset of, mindset of always tackling the worst bad actors at all times. So we're, we're essentially trying to bring the highest value back to the company, you know, all the time, essentially. So you created a real-time grading score that is established. So you know at the end of each shift how you guys scored each day in terms of what your expectations were versus what your actual production was. That's correct, yes. And like I said, we took, we took it a step further to also be able to identify what were the root causes and equipment associated with those, with those discrepancies. So it's not just the score, it's also the score plus the root causes and reasons why we had that score. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I love the fact that you have this opportunity with executive level, I would say, uh, approval, right? Where it's from the top down, they're changing that cultural uh, direction there. And it seems like it's been very impactful. But you also mentioned data. As they say, data is the new oil. Us both being former oil and gas people, uh, it's very clear why that's important. So, this seems like a good moment to actually talk about that, the modernization of maintenance and monitoring. And so recently joining CP Kelco, I've heard that you've already made a huge impact, right? So could you talk about that a little bit and describe exactly how you did that for the listeners today? Yeah. Let me start by saying the type of mindset I have when I try to, when I try to approach you know, different challenges throughout the day. Really... I like to solve problems in a way that they get solved once and for good, once and for all. I don't want to just put a bandaid on a problem just to come back to it, you know, day later, a week later, just to, deal with, just to deal with the same problem again. Like I want, basically, I want any problem I face to always be a new problem. Because at that point, if I have a face problem once and solved it, I shouldn't see it again. Mm -hmm. So that type of mentality is what I brought to this company. And wherever I, you know, whenever our operators or people would bring issues to my attention, I wouldn't just try to solve it there and then. I would try to figure out, okay, how else can I prevent this from happening in the future? To kind of go back to your point, David. So one of the first things I noticed when I started this company is, you know, as with any manufacturing plant, you know, quality is key, right? You want to make sure you're making good quality product all the time. 
Now, I noticed that there was room for improvement in terms of getting our quality better. And one gap that I guess I had noticed in the plant was the sense of awareness at the floor level as far as how their decision making is driving quality. So, you know, in the past, we would, we, you know, we would just give our, our teams a set of instructions saying, hey, go, go run the process a certain way and just it'll make the product the way we need it to. But it, it's more, it, it actually goes beyond that because it's not just makes, make certain process changes. It's also, hey, you need to look at the quality that you're, that you're getting in line and make certain adjustments to make sure you're always driving the right quality to begin with. So that piece was, had been missing until, you know, I guess when I got there, I noticed that, hey, our operators don't really know what the quality of their product is in real time. So if we build models that show them what type of quality they, they're basically running, they're producing right now, they should be able to then make those necessary changes. And then hopefully the final product, once everything is blended together, it ends up, you know, falling in spec. So I was able to build them a control chart for one of the key process parameters that allowed them to see what the totalized average value was to that point in the production process. And it essentially give them, I guess, a forward outlook as, as far as, hey, you process half the batch at a certain spec. You might want to process the other half of the batch at a different spec. Mm -hmm. So that way you end up blending them into the right quality that you want. So implementing a pr program like that really did help drive, drive up the quality. Because now, like I said, our guys know exactly what type of quality they're producing in line. So that only helps with delivering the right final product at the end of the day. So that kind of dives into my next question on how you ensure consistent uptime. So I want to expand more on that. So you're talking about, you know, you're building these models, you're building that area, you're, you're building that communication. How have you learned the best way is to communicate that information to your employees, right? When you talk about you make production during the first half a day and then you want to shift it. You know, how have yeah. you learned to get people on board to say, hey, we're making real-time changes because people don't like change, especially when it's right. in the middle of a production. How have you figured out how to communicate real-time change during the day to, to have people look at your models and say, you know what, we're, we, we're going to run with it. We're going to do something different. Yeah, actually, I, I would say that... Um... A lot of the background to develop that type of vision and mindset, I would say, honestly, comes from watching sports. Because if you watch professional head coaches talk to their players and try to get them to be on the same page with running a certain offense or running a certain defense, you have to understand what types of personalities you're going to be you're going to be interacting with and how to bring them all in alignment with your vision and what types of uh, methods you may need to employ to get people to buy in. So what I'm hearing is you're the coach prime of your manufacturing process line is what you're doing, right? Yeah, I'm trying to be coach prime. Exactly. <laughs> Understanding that or seeing other people, you know, coach others allows me to also see what tactics work best when it comes to trying to communicate to other people. But like you said, Jake, communication is key. You have to communicate to your people if you want to implement a change. You can't just do it blindly. So, yeah, there's a big that's a big element of it. Now... When it comes to this OEE model, it sounds like you all transitioned over and focused on PDM, predictive maintenance, once you kind of got everything lined out. And recently, you actually partnered with Traction. So doing this PDM project, what are your biggest hopes, your goals and expectations and how that's going to impact, you know, uptime, runtime, uh, reliability in general of the machines, et cetera? 
Yeah. So like you mentioned, you know, we first built, we, when we first built this OE model, we were able to identify which assets were impacting our production process the most in terms of uptime. With that, knowing, you know, knowing that information, we partnered with Traction because we were excited to see what they could bring in terms of improving our asset availability because we've identified certain assets that we know that if they failed, they're going to create a catastrophic impact to the plant. And the OEE allowed the site to, to really under, realize that, you know, predictive maintenance was necessary for the plant and we needed to implement programs like vibration monitoring. So that was actually one of the main tasks that I was assigned to do when I joined the reliability was to try to bring on uh, a, bring in a vibration monitoring program. So when we were like conducting all the evaluations with vendors, what really stood out to me about traction was the analytics that they brought. Like I really was, was very impressed by the reliability metrics that they're able to calculate in real time, the level of detail when it comes to the failure modes and the insight generation. The other thing that also really stood out to me was that also kind of fit in with our needs as, as at the plant was your uh, ability to support cellular service when it comes to data transmission. Because for our plant, we have a lot of security related obstacles for lack of a better right. word. So mm -hmm. we needed to, we needed a system that would integrate well with the, with IT. So it's, you know, traction obviously supported that very well. And then, you know, I, one thing that doesn't really get, I feel like doesn't get talked about as much when, it, especially upfront is the user friendliness of the, of the systems. And that was one thing I was, I was really blown away by was track, was the ease of use of traction system compared to all the other solutions I saw. It is so easy to use your system to like, one of the highlights I wanted to bring up is the bearing library that you have in Traction, where you can actually right. assign the specific bearings to the assets, and then mm -hmm. the platform will automatically use that bearing data to then generate the insights associated with those exact bearings. So, right. you know, it, there were just a lot of cool features that we saw with Traction that we're really hoping to take advantage of, you know, going forward to keep our uptime up. And it's already looking like we're already catching some some insights. So one of the assets that's key to our plant, if it fails, it, really, it literally will cause about two thirds of the production to shut down. That asset, it was flagged for a bearing issue by the traction system. So we have a predictive maintenance request now to change out that asset during the, our upcoming shutdown. But without traction being able to tell us that, we might've just gone through the shutdown with that, that same uh, asset and the same bearing in place. So yeah, a lot of good potential I see with this partnership. Awesome. So we've heard about CP Calco, how they operate, but I kind of want to learn more about what's in your toolkit specifically, right? You know, we want to learn about the latest trends and technology that's happening in the manufacturing, but at the same time, we want people to learn and grow professionally. We're going to fix it. Get the tool. Pick the one right tool. The right tool for the right job. So, you know, this next question is, we, we learned about your toolkit and how you have seen personal and career growth. So you, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how you've really enjoyed the STEM field over the years, right? We've, you've been in oil and gas, you're now in food and Bev, but what would you do to say, encourage others who are interested in getting involved in this space and saying, Hey, this is an industry. This is a career that would be exciting for them. Kind of going back to my background, I guess I was inspired to go into STEM because of my parents. We have engineers all along my dad's side. Uh, my mom has a master's in chemistry. Um, so I really drew from their life experiences growing up um, as far as understanding which career paths would be most successful. I don't know if successful is the right word, but um, less volatile. Maybe that's the best right. word. Maybe that's a good word. I guess 
Yeah, and basically what I'm trying to say is I, I know that careers in STEM are always in high demand, right? So I, I kind of knew that, okay, if I pursue STEM, like I know there's always going to be a need for my skill set, whatever point of, of time. Like it's not as cyclical as other, as other professions can tend to be. And so that's one of the major things I like about STEM, obviously along with the science and math, right, which is part of what I already like to do. But I also like that I'm able to apply that in roles where I know that there's always going to be a need for it. Yeah. And I got to reflect a little bit on your background being an oil and gas guy. And obviously the volatility of pricing there is one of the most extremes in different verticals, right? So I'm sure you learned that uh, it's good to have a a ability to pivot into something else. And that is what STEM does the absolute best, right? Yes, exactly. That's a, that's a really good takeaway there. Awesome. Well, with that, let's jump into our third segment, which is, you know, the future of factories. Futures. What future? The factory. My factory. Everybody's factory. I love your factory. My factory. My walls. We had some great conversations earlier talking about technology and when it comes to incorporating better data. So what advice would you give when you would say companies who want to explore, you know, creating better OEE models or creating real-time action plans to shift production during the day or during the shift? What what advice would you give them on why to expand, you know, that collecting data and making actionable decisions on it immediately? I would say the very first thing that's key to that is you have to really understand your process in and out. Like you really need to know how the time that you have available to you is being utilized to run your manufacturing operation. As we all know, time is money, right? So every every hour, minute that's wasted it equates to some some amount of money that's lost. So what I recommend that should be done is develop a model that's uh, specific to one of your critical assets on the site and identify all the different stages of that asset's operation over the course of the process. Because that asset should be doing something at every point in time, meaning it should never just be sitting idle. In the case of our fermentation process, either we're actively using a fermenter vessel to grow a batch or we're actively in the process of cleaning that vessel and getting it ready for the next batch. And then as soon as it's ready, it's growing the next batch. Meaning there's no, there's no point in that cycle where it's, the fermenter is just sitting there idle doing nothing. So what I would recommend is, you know, similar to that, pick an asset where you know what the defined cycle is for that asset and what target durations you should expect to have for each stage of that, op- of that asset. And then start tracking you know, am I spending the amount of time that I say I should be doing that particular step of the operation? If I'm taking more time than I should be, you should be tracking that in real time. Hey, why did I take an extra hour or two hours to do this cleaning step when it should only take me one hour? That, and, you know, in real time, that's where you really need the, the buy-in from the, your, production floor, your production team and the people on the floor to be providing that feedback to the engineers and to the supervisors as, as far as hey, we countered this delay because of so-and-so. Then it goes back to how you set up your data collection tools. So, I mean, the way we set up ours is, you know, we have drop-down selections for high-level root causes. We have a drop-down selection for all the different assets in the plant. So our, our production team can directly assign the whatever issue happened to a particular asset, if it was caused by an asset, and then what type of delay occurred. Was it... Uh, you know, was it out of service for maintenance? If, if maintenance is doing PM, a PM on that asset, 
well, obviously you're going to, you're going to encounter delay in the production process until maintenance gives that asset back to you to use. So essentially you're capturing all of those different reasons for the various time delays that you encounter. And then, you know, that just helps really build a data set over time that you can then review collectively and, you know, develop summary charts for and really identify the top bad actors and know what to tackle first to resolve those issues. And, you know, that's a very interesting point. So we've talked about the data, but also you alluded to the buy-in, right? That's very, very important to get that buy-in when it comes to the actual team members that are doing this, right? So as someone who we already know, you've successfully done several projects. How do you get that buy-in? And do you see obstacles for the future as we onboard more technology, as we get newer employees? Do you see obstacles for us as a community in the industrial space implementing these? And what do you say is the right way to kind of navigate (laughs) those treacherous waters, I'll say? Sure. Honestly, I would say this. I would actually say they're not really treacherous at all. It really just comes down to simplifying your point in a way that makes sense to your audience. So a good way to, I guess, uh, explain this in other words is OEE, it can be a very complicated model, but at the end of the day, everyone understands time and money, right? If I'm wasting an extra, if I'm wasting an hour doing something, everybody understands that. It doesn't matter how complicated or simple your your model is to tell you that. So that's kind of the approach I used to help get the buy-in. I'm like, I was, I told my team, you know, yeah, we have this complicated OE model, but at the end of the day, it's tracking how much money we're losing in real time in our production process. And so that's the overall value that we're going to be gaining out of this is that we're actually able to see where we're having our monetary losses. And now we can actually request capital to fund engineering projects to eliminate those problems. So you have to come full circle and show them what's the end goal you're trying to get to. And make it clear in a way that they understand, because if they also see that end goal and agree with you, they're more likely to to buy into the process that you're trying to implement. Right. No, that that's good. That's very good words. Sounds like you've been very successful at that as well, which I've personally uh, been able to see. So congratulations on that. Now, with that being said, talking about the future of factories and things, I like to look a little bit further downrange and kind of imagine uh, the future maybe when we're. multi-planetary species like uh, Elon Musk says that he's aiming right. But anytime before that, where do you see us uh, as humans or even from a practical level uh, here in the near future, where do you see the future of factories uh, from a a program perspective, uh, project and technology perspective? Okay, good. Because I was going to intentionally avoid the human factors perspective on that question. Um, (laughs) For sure. But from a, yeah, from a technical perspective, I would say the biggest challenge going forward would be to try and drive more environmentally friendly uh, manufacturing throughout the world. When I grew up in Houston for 20-something years, I never experienced a 100-degree day during the summertime. And my parents, my parents just went through like two straight months of 100-degree weather in Houston. During the, and I was completely shocked because I had never had to see that. Wow. So my point is that it's coming whether factories like it or not. There's going to be a focus on being more environmentally sustainable. So... I think getting ahead of it obviously is key. Um, And also from a reputation standpoint, standpoint, if your customer base sees you or considers you at the vanguard of the environmental movement towards being sustainable, that's only going to help the bottom line. So at the end of the day, sure, there might be some some short-term pain when it comes to investing in in environmentally friendly solutions, but long-term, it's going to pay off big. And to anybody that wants to challenge me on this, we already accept this whenever we go work out because working out causes muscle pain, but you still do it every day to build muscle over time. 
So it <laughs> takes, so there's going to be upfront, you know, investment, but it's going to pay off long-term. And I think that's where we're going globally. So. Right. That's really good. Um, and from my perspective, the good news is I see a lot of enterprise companies focusing on this. And so it is definitely a movement that's taking place. And so we'll see where that goes. Now, before we wrap things up and say goodbye to Gotham, we would like to go into our next segment, which we call the Fix It Funnies. The fix is in. It's making a really funny noise. I'm going to fix it. Make it funny would be great if you could make it funny. Your fate is fixed. That's what makes it funny. Make sure it's funny. So we asked about your summer memories and things like that, but let's say we wanted to have this conversation here shortly in the winter. Where would we have that conversation? Where would you like to be if we could do this anywhere in the world during the wintertime? What would that uh, look like for you? Yeah, that's, that's actually kind of funny because uh, if it was anywhere in the world, we wouldn't be doing it in the winter. We'd be going to the Southern Hemisphere and doing it, doing it in their summertime because I'm not a winter nice. guy at all. Yeah, the worst I did was maybe 40 degree weather. So you're not going to find me outside uh -huh. in the snow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But I mean, honestly, if I was like... That's a very good answer. Yeah. So if you were in the food and bev industry, what other industry or what other profession would you like to be in? You know, that's actually a, that's a good question. It's um, kind of tough to say, but I've, I've always had a passion towards like getting into something with, uh, you know, my profession, the, the professional sports teams that I follow. Like I love doing data analysis. Like I give you behind the scenes at the, at the Houston Rockets front office and let me do data analysis and figure out how to get, get my teams to do, play better. You know, like I, I don't know, I guess. Nice. You probably find me doing something in a sports-related uh, capacity. If it wasn't engineering, you would be uh, Moneyball, where they're going Moneyball, out there yeah. and, oh, and yeah. the guy that's doing yeah. all the analytics and the analysis and saying, yeah. "No, we're 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 playing for runs and on-base percentage, not by yep. individuals." You'd be that guy for a sports team. I'd be that guy. Yep, <laughs> that's awesome. Houston Rockets, are you listening? You have an opportunity here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, awesome. So. After uh, Jake actually mentioning that show, my next question for you actually is, are you enjoying are you uh, enjoying any sort of specific content, whether that be on Netflix, YouTube, uh, podcast, hint, hint? Uh, what are you looking at nowadays, <laughs> if at all? Uh, what does that look like for you? I, I really do enjoy watching sports. And right now, right now we're in college football season. So, I mean, I'll tend to, you know, watch sports whenever it's on. But apart from that, like, yeah, I'll. I'll watch like, you know, whatever the top Netflix documentaries are, you know, like it's hard to say, but uh, like I watched, I watched this, I watched uh, a show on Netflix or the Amazon Prime it had to do with uh, the new uh, after, after high school basketball league that they just started in Atlanta called OTE because like one of the, the Houston Rockets just drafted a guy from the OTE league because he, he, uh, he circumvented going oh, to college yeah. and went to play right. in this, in this new league. So yeah, I was watching that. I watched Hard Knocks, you know, the training camps special on the New York Jets. Like, I just like getting, like, I guess maybe you could see kind of where my, my mindset for, for communication and getting and coaching people comes from. It's like, I learn, mm -hmm. I try to learn from the best. So I, right. I like, I, I'm just always around that kind of environment, you know? So I just, yeah, I just enjoy that, I guess. For sure. Thanks for coming to our show, Gautam. It has been wonderful to have you. Absolutely wonderful. And for everyone else, this has been The Maintainers, a Blue Cap Community Podcast. Be sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast content as we are on most major platforms. So you'll be notified when we go live. Thanks again and have a great day. This podcast is brought to you by Traction. 
Traction offers streamlined hardware and software solutions designed to make maintenance more reliable and profitable. Their AI-powered condition monitoring and asset management solution predicts machine failures and unplanned downtime, allowing clients to save an average of $10 million every trimester. It's artificial intelligence quarterbacking your maintenance.